Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are deep in the middle of pumpkin spice latte season. This is our mid-October show for 2015. To do this show, I need to bring in the great pumpkin himself, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I want to point out that I'm on a a diet these days, and I'm actually less pumpkin-shaped than I usually am. I can't do anything about that stem coming out of the middle of my forehead, but I'm trying, Lynn. I'm trying. So. <laughs> I was going to say the uh, the great string bean, if you're losing weight. At best, I'm a summer squash these days. Uh, you know, just right. so it's still gourd-like, but working on it. So. <laughs> All right, listeners, dear, dear listeners, thank you so much for listening. Remember in the last Chronological Disney episode, we talked briefly about the history of the Walt Disney Company, and Disneyland specifically, in the early 1980s. But there's actually some stuff that we didn't fully explore. We had referenced that there was a new fantasy land coming in the early 1980s, but there's actually more to that story than we originally had time to do. So we thought we'd double back on this and sort of go a little bit deeper into that era. Jim has also promised to describe for us a couple of lands that were proposed but were never built for that part of Disneyland. And we've got additional concept art that we'll post on the notes online, but bring it all together Let's welcome Jim. Jim, how's it going? So, again, I, I apologize. If, if we were sticking to our chronology here, we would be talking about Disneyland from 82 to 87. And uh, as Len mentioned, we'd be jumping into the transformation of this theme park's Fantasyland area. And that actually, I think, as we discussed in the last show, got underway in December of 81 when they closed the Fantasyland Theater and, like, gutted it uh, just out ahead of Christmas. Tony Baxter tells this great story of touring the construction site the night after they had done this. They had gutted the theater, and he's standing behind the construction wall and sort of looking at it. And he's the guy who's really been behind this project. The funny part is that at this exact moment as he's standing there, the area lights goes to dusk. And so the area lights that are automatically programmed to come on, come on on the gutted Fantasyland Theater. (sighs) He's just looking at it, you know, this empty hole that now has twinkle lights on. It's like. What have I done? It's uh-huh. like, oh, no, this is bad. Tony was just following through on what Walt wanted. Those of you who, who know the history of Disneyland understand that if you look at the early concept art for Fantasyland, I, Walt really had a storybook village in mind for that area. It was very much drawn from the village that Geppetto lives in in Pinocchio. So cobblestone streets and leaded glass windows. And But as, as 54 gives way to 55... The money starts to get tight, and they just run out of time. So they default to this different idea, which is instead of storybook village buildings, mm-hmm. they build tournament tents as if this tournament had come to town and set up in the forecourt of the castle. And inside of each of these tournament tents were the dark rides, Snow White Scary Adventure, Mr. Toad Wild Ride, and further down the way, Alice. You had placed within the land also other things like the King's Arthur Carousel, which sort of fit the whole tournament tent motif. And then you had things like Dumbo's Flying Elements, which is sort of like, okay, how does that fit in with a castle? And it's whimsical. whimsical. Well, Flying elephants are always whimsical, Jim. Early on, what, what Walt wanted to do to sell the idea, in fact, this is where the tournament tent idea came from, is that if Fantasyland was a storybook village, 
then at the very edge of uh, Fantasyland, sort of at, at that area where you can breeze out the back way to Big Thunder Ranch. For a few more they, months anyway. There you go. <laughs> but they're going to set up tents there as if a circus had come to town, and this is where now Dumbo fits the story, because it's okay, a circus came to visit the Storybook Village, and here's the Dumbo ride. Is that actually the reasoning for putting Storybook Circus in Fantasyland in Walt Disney World, that it's set up on the edge of town? That's it exactly. Oh my I mean, god, that makes so much sense. And if you look at where the restroom slash train station is set up there, right, right. Uh, again, the, the train pulls into town, the circus gets off, oh. and they don't go very deep into town. They stay as close to the train station as possible, but they, they set up there, so when they break down, they just hop on the train and go. That makes total sense, and I finally understand the design. We should stop the show now, because I'm... Good night, everybody! <laughs> we've, we've learned as much as I think I, my head can hold in one day, but let's continue. All right, so they were going to... They're going to do Storybook Circus, or the idea that was there was a circus on the edge of Fantasyland. Yeah. Okay. Walt never really liked this iteration of Fantasyland. I mean, he just looked at it and saw where he cut corners, where they cheaped out. Now, understanding that, you, when you see, for example, when he circled back on canal boats of the world and changed into the Storybook canals, the amount of money and attention that he poured into this thing, he was determined to turn Fantasyland around eventually. At the Disneyland Tencennial Party, uh, it was held in the summer of 1965, they had this party at the Disneyland Hotel, and Walt stood up and actually talked about his future plans for the park, and he said that after they opened New Tomorrowland at 67, and after New Orleans Squares came online at 68, that's when they turned back to Fantasyland and reinvent that whole side of the park for 69 and 1970. But, of course, Walt dies in December of 66, and what with the company concentrating all of its time and efforts and, more importantly, money on, on getting Walt Disney World opened in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, redoing Fantasyland got placed on the back burner, the way, way, way back burner, which isn't to say that the Imagineers didn't try to get something going for this part of the park. In the early 1970s, they even revisited that idea of the traveling circus at the edge of town. Okay. This was to be Dumbo's Circus, a brand new land for the theme park. It would have been built on the chunk of land where, you know that theater that houses the Mickey and the Magical Map show right Magic. now? Mm -hmm. This is the piece of property we're talking about. Here's a description of the new land from the Walt Disney Productions annual report from 1976. It states that, also contemplated as part of the park's new seven-year development master plan is Circus Land, an entirely new land to be located on approximately five hitherto undeveloped acres, both inside and outside the berm, adjacent to Small World. Here, circus banners will herald a wide variety of attractions, including a relocated and elevated Dumbo the Flying Elephant ride, a new Pinocchio dark ride, which will have Stromboli's Little Puppet Theater, gracing its queue, a clown restaurant, and Mickey's Madhouse, which was to be a thrilling ride through theme to the 1930s and the days of glorious black-and-white Mickey Mouse cartoons and ragtime music. However, the highlight of this all-Disney-themed area will be Circus Disney, a major ride-through attraction featuring a myriad of favorite Disney characters all brought to life through the audio-animatronics process. Wow. Guests will travel through the Wild Animal Menagerie, featuring King Louie and Shere Khan from The Jungle Book, down a midway where familiar Disney stars will be seen in the sideshow, like the amazing Flying Dumbo, Ninth Wonder of the World, 
through Clown Alley, and then finally into the Big Top, where guests will actually be on stage as part of a three-ring show featuring Daredevil acts like the Flying Goofinis. Funny. Clown Alley sounds actually kind of nightmarish to me, but... Yeah, there's a lot of us who feel that way. Clown-themed restaurant and, oh, you know... Oh, God. I can't eat through from the screaming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, Len, I've sent you a couple of pieces of concept art for this land. And right. if you look at, for example, the one that says Mickey Circus, if you look in the left-hand corner of the image, you get a sense of how crazy detailed this was supposed to be. Like a set piece you're supposed to roll by, which, which by the way, you're traveling through the attraction okay. in sort of these circus wagons. There's multi-passenger uh, wheeled vehicle. It looks to me like it seats upwards of 20 to 24 people at a time. Okay. If you look at this image, you have, at the edge of the three-ring circus, you have these Disney bears forming an acrobatic pyramid. So an audio-animatronic version of Little John from Robin Hood with Br'er Bear from Song of the South and Baloo from Jungle Book standing on his shoulders. Then <laughs> standing in the upright hands of Baloo and Br'er Bear are Winnie the Pooh and yep. Lulu Bell from Dizzy's 1947 program feature, Fun and Fancy Free. And then, Cherry on the Sunday here, Winnie the Pooh and Lulu Bell are holding a pole between them, and who's riding back and forth on his unicycle on this pole but Bongo the Bear, who's also from Fun and Fancy Free. In the concept art that you sent, this is like less than one inch square. Yeah. And the concept art is 10, 11 inches wide. I mean, that's <laughs> just one set of characters in the big top scene. I mean, they have the flying goofinis, they have a an animal menagerie to the right side, where if you look at it, it's Maleficent as a dragon there with Bagheera from Jungle Book. And the notion is that all these animals will be roaring at you as you you roll through this part. And there's a Ferris wheel where if you look at it closely, Donald's nephews are riding it with the three little pigs. And it was sort of this super deluxe audio animatronic celebration of Disney. And then if you, you take a look at the outdoor model, the thing where you actually see a guy with tweezers making adjustment to the uh, the Dumbo ride. Yes, this um, is a 3D sort of like train set type of yeah. concept. And, uh, and for scale, there's a uh, a human hand with a giant pen or tweezers looking at it. So the, the hand is, is like the size of like a third of one of the rides. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. Just beyond, you'll see a building to the right that's actually where the Mickey's Madhouse ride was built You'll see sort of a balloon shape, and then behind the balloon shape, sort of all these multicolored circles. That was actually an attraction that was going to be called the Great Western Balloon Ascent. Great Western Balloon Ascent. Yeah, the gimmick was that you actually got aboard this tiny hot air balloon that then went back and forth along a ride track down a hill. It's basically circled down the hill and came back up. If you boarded it from the other side, this mm. was the transportation system to Dumbo Circus. Oh. But if you're, you're going from the Dumbo Circus side, this took you down the hill to the other land that was being built or was envisioned as part of this seven-year expansion plan. Where this land was supposed to be built at the very edge of the rivers of America is actually where Star Wars land is about to begin construction. They've had uh, a number of ideas for that expansion pad, right? They have, they have. But this was the one that lived the longest. This was the one that Disney fans to this day still talk about. And, of course, we're talking about Discovery Bay. For those of you who aren't familiar with this concept, again, quoting from the 1976 annual report, 
This brand new land was to have been themed to San Francisco of the Gold Rush Age. Discovery Bay would bring to life an age of discovery and expansion. Here would be located attractions based on motion pictures like Islands at the Top of the World and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, with the latter featuring undersea dining in the Grand Salon of Nemo's famous submarine, the Nautilus. Oh, man. If you were a steampunk fan, this would have been your dream come to life. Knowing that we were going to be talking about this today, I dug the October 12, 1976 pitch document that the Imagineers prepared for Disney's board of directors when they were trying to sell them on building this land. Uh, do you want to hear it? Yeah, I'd love to. Go ahead. Okay, so along the rivers of America, in the northern portion of Frontierland, lies Discovery Bay. Having as its roots the San Francisco of the 1850s to 1880s, this themed area would bring to life a time and a place that climaxed an age of discovery and expansion. Discovery Bay would reflect the influx of opportunist dreamers and adventurers that poured into the cultural melting pot after the discovery of gold. The railroad link with the East brought with it the beginning of culture and luxury, and the area was now earning a reputation of a city of myths and eccentricities. With these parameters established, a western port city would be the, a logical and exciting addition to Frontierland. Such a, a debarkation point would be a natural for many of our existing show concepts, as well as some exciting new ones. The area would fan out around a bay inlet from uh, Rivers of America. Standing in a rock outcropping, an old lighthouse keynotes the style of the Age of Mechanical Wonders. This is where they're going to start docking the Columbia once the land was built. You can kind of see the Columbia in that era. I mean, it'd be sort of like uh, the very early part of that era. Along the docks would be a traditional Chinatown. This would recreate a Chinese settlement from the early days of the western frontier. You'd have exotic dishes, merchandise, and an unusual attraction called the Fireworks Factory. Here, guests could test their marksmanship, bursting skyrockets and pinwheels and various firecrackers, as they move along assembly lines. So this is basically a, a variation of the Disney shooting gallery. And I wonder if they would have actually allowed fireworks in the park. They would have uh, simulated it. Okay. If you remember in Mickey's Toontown, they actually have that plunger outside of uh, one of the buildings that sets up fireworks. In the grand Disney tradition of ideas never die, a lot of the fireworks and effects that were, or faux fireworks and effects that were designed for the shooting gallery wound up there, and actually the fireworks factory name wound up being used for a restaurant at Walt Disney World's Pleasure Island. I was going to say, yeah. Sesagula. Now, what was the fireworks factory? That was uh, one of the the earliest restaurants at Pleasure Island. They eventually became replaced by that country western restaurant, Wild Horses or something to that effect. Okay. It was actually great fun. The gimmick was that you sat inside a fireworks factory that had recently blown up. So, you know, just... All these holes in the walls and shells and that sort of thing. Okay, cool. Getting back to the description. In another corner, a group of opportunists have set up shop. Among the promises and allures offered are those of a French aerial explorer. He promises brave adventurers a trip aboard a fantastic flying machine to the island paradise at the top of the world. We had talked briefly about the island at the top of the world. It was a Disney movie, right? Yeah, yeah 19, okay. it was 1974, in fact. Sadly, the fate of this proposed land for the parks keyed off of whether or not that movie made any money. And, oh, damn it. And it didn't. <laughs> it, didn't. <laughs> it came out in December of 74, made a total of $10 million 
It's an adventure movie, an action-adventure movie starring David Hartman. Let's just think about that for a moment, Len. David, David Hartman. You know, because if adventure has a name, it's it, David, Hart David Hartman. <laughs> anyway, getting back to, so again, we have a guy on the top of the world ride. We also have a couple of 20,000 Leagues-based experiences. There's actually a Nemo Lava Cruiser attraction where literally you're supposed to go out. This is the very first time that Disney talks about a simulator-based attraction, much the same way as in Star Tours. You got inside that capsule that seated about 30 to 40 people, and you looked out through a giant view screen, and you supposedly went, literally went out into Discovery Bay. And at one point, you got attacked by a squid, and the roof of the attraction, you're supposed to have surfaced, and the roof of the attraction opens, and an audio-animatronic squid tentacle comes into the, the room, flaps around, and gets pulled back out. That's not disturbing at all. No, 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 no. Uh, did simulator technology exist at this time? They were proposing this attraction. The gimmick was that there were going to be two different pods that they'd load people into. And it was just a question of, this is what we want to do, and is there a way we can make the room go back and forth in concert with the images that are on the screen. One of the things they were going to use to sell the idea that the room was moving much more than it actually did is they were actually going to have sort of a, this light fixture that was hanging from the top of the room, or multiple light fixtures, okay. that were rigged so that when you, the ship seemed to be taking a hard right, they'd actually move and give you, you know, the, the visual that, oh, my God, we're actually taking a hard right. Right, right, right. You know, some very, very clever ideas. But the dining in the Grand Salon, I mean, literally what they were going to do, they were going to build a full-size Nautilus wow. and have it sitting next to the dock of Discovery Bay. And you'd go down a circular set of stairs and in much the same way as what they do at Disneyland Paris where – you know, you think you're going down this circular set of stairs into the Nautilus, but you actually make one too many turns. You end up walking into a show building rather than the thing that's in the water. But same thing. You would have made a turn that sent you into a, an underground show building where they then had the Grand Salon of the, the, the Nautilus, which was now turned into a restaurant. And those giant round windows that James Mason and Kirk Douglas look out of in the movie – filled with fish and that wonderful view of the sea, they were going to create these two beautiful aquariums that provide that artificial view. It's always the same issue I had with the Coral Sea Cafe, where mm -hmm. it's like, yes, it's a wonderful view, but I'm eating a fish. That is the one problem with Coral Reef, right? It's like eating a hamburger in, the, in a meadow. Sitting there enjoying your ham sandwich while overlooking the Chicago stockyards. It's fresh, no doubt. Don't get me wrong. Totally okay. fresh. So they were so determined to get this made. But in the end, it all came down to did Island at the Top of the World, you know, because, again, they, they were there was an Island at the Top of the World attraction. They were going to build a full-size Hyperion that they were going to keep in a barn and you'd actually enter the hangar, and that's where you, that was the load building for this thing. And there was a time travel attraction. In the first bit of recycling that we saw, for example, with Splash Mountain, where they took the figures that had been created for America Sings and then moved them over to Splash Mountain to be the residents of the Briar Patch, they actually were talking about doing this much earlier. One of the weirder things at Disneyland is the Grand Canyon diorama next to primeval world because nothing to me says i'm getting ready for turn of the century america 
like going past a T-Rex battling a, a Stegosaurus that wow. really sets the stage. Sure. So what they were talking about doing is they, they had these, you know, I mean, and the managers looked at it and they said, look, this isn't telling the right story. This isn't setting the scene properly for Main Street USA, you know, but if we moved these things, if we moved these dinosaurs to an attraction that was about time travel, then they work. Then it tells a, a story so that makes sense. And that this was the third big show for Discovery Bay, that there was going to be this boat ride that, that sent you through these portals mm -hmm. that would take you back to various ages, either in the distant past or the distant future. They, They've actually used that theme, what, Timekeeper, Walt yeah. Disney World Railroad, mm -hmm. a Universe of Energy, World of Again. Motion. Yeah, it's, it's a con Okay, all right, it's a lot. But you have to understand, this is 1976. This is a new, radically new concept at this point. And the fact that it was so vivid and for the Imagineers so frustrating that it did not, in fact, get built, that Discovery Bay filtered out into the company in a lot of ways. I mean, for, you don't have to go any further than, say, Discovery Land at Euro Disneyland, because I mean Disneyland Paris now, where they actually they built the, the Hyperion. They, they built the hangar building. A lot of the design whether it's the full-size Nautilus that's sitting there that you can do as a walkthrough. I mean, whole chunks of this did live on and get built in other parks. The dining experience in mean, the Nautilus, it wound up being reimagined as the Coral Cafe, but it all came down to Island at the Top of the World, the movie, didn't make any money. What really kind of hurt here is that, all right, so here comes Winston Hibbler. And again, quoting from the, the 76th Annual Report, so he comes to the door with what's supposed to be the most ambitious motion picture the Walt Disney Company has ever attempted, okay. Space Station One. And we talked about this the last show. You know, it was supposed to be this fantastic science fiction story. Uh, they were going to be, begin production in mid-1977 for a Christmas 78 release. At that time, John Hugh was going to direct. And at this point, it was about a doomed space station, an incredible robot that was going to assist in the rescue of a doomed space station that was being steadily drawn into a black hole. Because their first attempt in the 70s to make an action-adventure film that was kind of inspired by 20,000 Leagues bombed, Disney was hesitant to, to double down. Sure. And as we talked in the last show, if they'd done that, they would have beaten George Lucas to the punch. But they didn't. And so the black hole doesn't go in production till mid-1978. And the only reason it goes into production is that Star Wars had opened in theaters in May 1977 and had made more money than God. In November of 2009, Disney actually announced plans to remake the black hole. It was the entire production team of... Tron legacy that was going to take this thing on. They were going to try to make this really, really, really serious take on the material that the only thing that, that they were going to keep from the previous film was that it was a ship that for some reason was hanging in space mm -hmm. at the edge of this black hole and that there were robots on board. And that, that was it. You know, everything else was, it was going to be a brand new story, a brand new reboot of this idea. This was something that, the Imagineers wanted to build. As we mentioned previously, what happened in Florida had a lot of impact on what happened in California. Right. And it was just one of these things where it's like, look, guys, we know we need to expand Disneyland. We know we need to do new things there, but we have to get Epcot done. Actually, that's the only reason that New Fantasyland actually went forward. The realization that 
It's December of 81, and they have all these people who have been working on Epcot getting that ready to go out the door, and they finished designing the figures and the sets, and they realized there is nothing for us to do now. And so it's like, oh, you know, hey, that that thing that Walt wanted to do, that redesigned a fantasy land, uh, you know, let's go do that. As as promised, next show, the next chronological Disneyland will actually drop back into that. But I just thought, given, again, that if you look at Circus Land and the fact that legitimately had an impact on the company, I mean, for example, the Pinocchio Dark Ride that they designed for that did eventually make it into the park. In fact, it made it into the park as part of New Fantasyland. It also traveled to uh, Tokyo Disneyland. When they were talking about this land, Circus Disney, they were talking about all Disney which is kind of a weird phrase until you realize, now, wait a minute, if you look at what had been in the works up until that point, you had Haunted Mansion, you had Pirates of the Caribbean, you had Big Thunder, you had Space Mountain, which didn't necessarily tie themselves to the Disney characters. Here in the mid-70s is the company realizing that, well, what's what's one of our great strengths? And it's these characters. So why don't we build a land that celebrates these characters? They don't actually get around to that again till really into the 2000s. 10, 15 years from now, whatever, 20 years. But things like the new fantasy land that got built in Florida, where it's all Disney characters all the time. So I um, still can't believe the thing about uh, Storybook Circus, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, that that's blowing my mind right now. We promise we'll get back to the new fantasy land with the next show, folks, but I, I hope you enjoyed this digression. Once we bag the series, we can actually do one final show for the series about all of the lands and all of the attractions that never quite made it off the drawing board. For the, the land that management forgot. There we go. <laughs> all right. You've been listening to the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It was produced by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, guys.